Heavenly Father, uh, we've learned a lot already in our study of Matthew. We're barely four chapters in, Father, to this gospel, but there's already so much to learn, and that just gets us excited for what's left to go and learn in future chapters. Thank you, Father, for the riches of your word. Uh, Father, we're also aware of the fact that you give us this word so that we would know it and then share it, living it out in our lives and explaining it to other with our, others with our words. So, Father, as we listen tonight, as we study, make us good students. Put aside distractions that would otherwise keep us from re- uh, listening and paying attention to what you're teaching us tonight, Father. Uh, give us a, a sober and, and, and serious mindset about what we're reading, Father, to take it in and consider it carefully in our own lives. Um, perhaps, Father, put someone on our heart that we know who we could introduce to these things so that they could know it too, Father. Use this as uh, your ambassador in that way. Uh, but whatever you choose to do, Father, I just pray that what, what we're learning here today, Father, wouldn't stay with us here in this room. It would go out with us, and it would be something to help grow the kingdom, to bring others with us into the grace that we've received, Father. We thank you for that most of all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There was a, a couple that built their dream home. Unfortunately, they overspent. And, you know, the term house poor, they were house poor. Big house, no other money. And as a result, being cash-strapped, the only entertainment this couple could afford was to go to the mall and just window shop. And so one day they, they go into the mall, they, they go into the department store, and, of course, they divide up, right? The woman goes into the, the ladies' section, the man goes into the men's section, and... After a while, the woman comes back to the man, to her husband, carrying a shopping bag filled with a dress that cost $1,000. And her husband, shocked, said, How could you do this? You know we have no money. And the wife sheepishly replied, Well, it was the strangest thing. I, I saw this dress on the rack, and I just started imagining myself wearing it. And so I got the dress, and I went into the dressing room, and I put it on. And the next thing you know, I had bought it. And she said, it was, it was like Satan was there whispering in my ear, that dress looks fabulous on you. You should buy it. And the husband says, well, you know, honey, when I get in a situation like that, I just tell Satan, get behind me, Satan. And the wife said, I know, I did. I said, Satan, get behind me. And he said, oh, it looks fabulous from back here, too. You ever, you ever feel like that? You feel like you just can't help yourself from giving in to Satan's temptations when he comes along? And if you feel that way, look, you're not alone. Because we've already learned Satan is the wisest creature God has ever made. So it's no surprise he has great skill in leading us into temptation. We've studied the first of the temptations that he offered to Jesus in our teaching last week. In that one, when you saw the enemy asking Jesus to prove that the word of God was true concerning the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. And he says, you can prove it if you just make stones into bread. And when we dissected the enemy's methods, we noted that Satan always starts this way. He always starts by untethering us from the Word of God, indicting the Word subtly, trying to put a seed of doubt in our mind about the truth of it. He leads us to to rethink things that we already know, actually. Or, or to doubt instructions that we have heard before to justify our desires as somehow being consistent with the Word of God. You know, we're always ready, it seems, to find a new take on something we've always heard as long as that new take lets us do what we want, right? That's, that's our nature. 
So once he's got you untethered from the word of God, you're just sort of floating free now, ready for a suggestion. And that's the moment he's waiting for. Now all that's required is a little temptation to just incentivize you to consummate your lust and go down a direction of sin. That's what happens. That's how it works. Last week, when we looked at this, in that first temptation, we said there's really three ways he can tempt you in this process. First John 2.16 gave us those three ways that the, the things of this world that tempt us can be classified into three areas. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or the pride of life, as he put it. Pride. So the first temptation we studied last week was directed at Jesus' body, his need for food in light of his fasting, or in other words, the lust of his body. Satan said to Jesus, you know, if you make these stones into bread, you'll prove that you're God, because once again, God did that in the past. He brought manna to Israel when they were in the wilderness. That's sort of a calling card of God. Why don't you do it again and we'll know you're God? He wanted him to give up his fast, obviously, because he knew if he put bread in front of Jesus, Jesus would be strongly tempted to eat it. So drawing from Exodus, he suggests this particular proof. And of course, we saw Jesus wisely turning it down, beginning with his reaffirming of his anchor that is going to the Word of God with the truth. God's Word, he said, tells us that obeying God is more important than satisfying our body's desires. That's really the priority for God. He wants you to obey Him more than worry about what your body has. And in this case, had Jesus made bread from stones, he would have proven himself to be God. That's the irony. He would have been proving himself to be God as Satan was demanding, But simultaneously, by acting against the instructions of the Father, he would have been contradicting the Word of God, violating the Word of God, even as he obeyed it in one sense, violating it in another. That's the lesson. The lesson is if you trade obedience for some fleshly desire, you forfeit eternal things to gain temporal things, and that is a bad deal. That is a bad deal. So now, with that background, let's go back in to the text. We're picking up in verse 5, the second temptation. Let's see... How the devil takes on Jesus in this second way. Verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, or throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, if you were to compare this account to Luke's account, you're going to notice that Luke and Matthew record these temptations in a different order. The difference is due to the author's different perspectives and purposes in their writing. Luke opens his gospel by telling Theophilus, I'm writing to give you a precise account of the events in essentially in a chronological fashion. That was Luke's priority. I want to get this just the way it happened. While Matthew's purpose is not quite so... It doesn't depend so much on chronology. What Matthew's really trying to do is emphasize Jesus as king. And so in Luke's account, you have the actual order of the temptations. In this account, Matthew has switched them around a little bit, building to a crescendo where the main one is at the end for Matthew. So we're following Matthew's account because we're in Matthew, so we're going to go through it in that order. The first temptation was directed at the lust of the flesh in Matthew's account. The second one Matthew records is directed at the pride of life. Satan takes Jesus from the wilderness, we're told, to the holy city. Now, I'm sure you know that's Jerusalem. And it's unclear from the text whether Satan transported Jesus in some way or whether he just accomplished this temptation through a vision. Could have been either way. It doesn't really matter which way he did it. The point is, Jesus is now confronting 
a very different set of circumstances than the one he faced a moment ago. Specifically, he's standing on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, the word pinnacle just means the highest point of a structure. And the highest point of the temple, both then and now, is the southeast corner of the city walls. Uh, Time doesn't permit me to really walk you around the city in your mind, and I should have had a picture, I guess, but you can look one up yourself. But the southeast corner of the city wall of Jerusalem is also the southeast corner of the temple because the temple is built up into the corner of the city at that point. So that same wall that is the city wall is also the wall of the temple compound because it's stuck in the corner there. And from that vantage point, if you were to stand on the wall, and the wall is wide enough to stand on and walk around. So if you stood on the city wall and you looked down over the edge of the wall, it's about 170 feet drop to the rocks of the Kidron Valley below. And so it's a fatal fall. I mean, there's no doubt. If you were to fall from that height, Satan is now putting Jesus in this place, tempting him with the same basic method we've outlined from the earlier temptation. So he starts by asking the question, if you are the Son of God, and the question itself is intended to indict the Word. But what's really interesting about it is, just like in the case of the first temptation, when you ask Jesus if you are the Son of God, the question itself presumes that Jesus is the Son of God. Did you catch that? I mean, Satan never asked this question of anyone else. He isn't walking around trying to figure out, if you're the Son of God, are you the Son of God? He knows who the Son of God is. The whole point of him asking this question is because he knows Jesus is the Son of God. His goal is not to verify Jesus' identity. His goal is to get Jesus to disobey the Father. That's the whole goal here. So because he knows that Jesus is the Son of God, he wants to tempt Jesus to sin. And by the way, I should add, because you are a child of God by faith. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. Because of that, Satan wants to tempt you. You have a target on your back. Whether you like it or not, you have a target. As a child of God, you're somebody the enemy knows is on the other team. That's why he tempts, because he wants to steal the Father's glory. He questions the trustworthiness of God's word, and then, like he did in the first case, he proposes a test that Jesus could perform to verify his identity. Now, in the first case, you remember, he challenged Jesus to perform a miracle, make stones into bread. That would be a proof that Jesus was divine, right? Now what he's doing, though, is he's challenging a different member of the Godhead. Now he's challenging the Father to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not asking Jesus to levitate. He's saying, throw yourself off and let the Father come rescue you. So this is a test of the Father now. And he quotes from Psalm 91, you notice? Satan quotes, but as he always does, he misquotes. He never gets it right. He misquotes and he misapplies the word, and he does it to suit his purposes. Let's read the passage from which Satan gets his quote. It's in Psalm 91, and I'm going to read the, about four verses so I give you the full context or a partial context of what Satan quoted. Psalm 91, verse 11. Speaking of the Father, it says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. And it goes on. So what this psalm does is make a general promise. God the Father making a promise to first to God's people, kind of in a general sense that that God will watch over his people. But in a specific sense, it's speaking about the Messiah. 
The Father promising to give His angels charge over the Messiah when He comes, protecting Him so that He will go through His mission on earth. Here's what He's saying. Here's what Psalm 91 is promising. To put it simply, Jesus came to earth to die a sacrificial death on a cross during a certain Passover. And as a result, Jesus couldn't die in like an ox cart accident somewhere along the way. You know what I'm saying? He, he couldn't die of drowning as a child. He couldn't die from a disease. He was going to get to where he was supposed to go. That was the reason he came. And Psalm 91 is a promise from the Father to the Son saying, I'm going to make sure nothing happens to you before you get to where you're supposed to be. That's what it's about. So in Psalm 91, he makes this promise. But I want you to look specifically, if you have it open, in verse 11, the Father promises angels will guard Jesus in all his ways. And then in verse 12, it says, not even would Jesus fall from stumbling on a stone. That's how protected he would be. Now, that's what the text says. And that's what Satan quoted, but not exactly. Because he cherry-picked. You know what cherry-picking is? Right? That's the term we use sometimes when someone selects segments or pieces of something, leaving other stuff out because those other things would actually contradict what they're trying to say. So they cherry-pick to get their point. It's, it's basically taking something out of context. False teachers, that's how they make their living, cherry-picking Scripture and misapplying it. Well, here's the chief false teacher of all time. And here's what he did. He suggests, and follow me on this, he suggested why, what he said to Jesus that the Father is promising that Jesus cannot be hurt under any circumstances. Under any circumstances at all. And so that's his proposition to Jesus. Let's test the Father's love. Let's test the Father's word. Throw yourself off this cliff, off this wall. Because the text of Scripture says you cannot be hurt. God will catch you with his angels. That's the test, right? Now here's the deception. He's taken the word out of context so that it lacks an important detail that was in the text I read. If you noticed, in verse 14 of what I read out of Psalm 91, the text says Jesus is delivered from harm because Jesus has loved the Father. Scripture defines loving the Father as obedience to the Word of God. You know that, right? It's not an emotion. It's not feeling all warm and fuzzy on the inside. Love in Scripture is defined as a verb. And it's obedience. 1 John 5, 3 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. It's the same thing in marriage, right? Your wife or your husband can tell you all day they love you, but if they don't do anything to please you or or try to meet your expectations, how loved do you feel? It's the same process with God. That's the key. The text of Psalm 91 says, Jesus was going to be protected by the Father because He honored the Father in His faithfulness to the mission. Because He loved the Father. And because he loved the Father, the Father was going to care for him. And not only was he going to protect the Son from the everyday cares and dangers of life, but ultimately he was going to rescue Jesus from the grave. That was the ultimate way in which he was going to fulfill this. Now, conversely, had Jesus not been faithful to obey the Father, well, the Father is not obligated to protect him under those circumstances. It was just that simple. Now, the word Satan quoted was true, but the way Satan attempted to apply it and the word he failed to include made his ultimate application false. And it caused, or it was calling upon Jesus to challenge God's authority. That by jumping off the wall, if Jesus had chosen to do that, he would have been dictating to the Father the timing and the circumstances under which the Father would have to fulfill his own word. You see that? He's forcing God's hand. 
The Father had a specific fulfillment in mind when He had Psalm 91 written. He had a specific plan in mind when He put that on paper. And we can be sure that what He did not have in His mind was saving Jesus from a suicide fall off the temple wall. Right? Here's Satan saying to Jesus, Oh, no, no, no. You can do this any way you want. You can pick however you want to live your life, and God is obligated to keep His word for you regardless of what you do. That's how God works, right? He's like a genie. We just do what we want, and he has to respond to us. You see the lie now, right? He was speaking, the Father was speaking about protecting Christ from his enemies, from the by and by of daily life, from anything that might get in the way of the mission. He was not giving the Son carte blanche to throw himself into harm's way, daring God to save him. That's ridiculous, right? That's turning God into a genie. That's forcing the Father to do our bidding. So, had Jesus agreed to that demand, he'd have been testing God under those terms. That's why you see Jesus reply in verse 7. He quotes from Deuteronomy again, where Moses told the people, you should not try to force God to prove himself to you time and time again. That's testing God. Israel did that repeatedly, as you probably know, in the desert as they wandered around. Ten times, we're told, they tested the Lord. And each of those ten times, what they were doing was grumbling against the Lord's faithfulness, claiming He wasn't the faithful God He was. And in doing so, they had an ulterior motive that you may not have noticed, perhaps, when you studied that account in Exodus. Every time they grumbled, if you go back and look, every time they grumbled, they did it in a state of deprivation. They were somewhere they needed something. Rather than ask God for it, what did they do? They indicted him by saying he hadn't given to them because he couldn't. Because you've led us out here to die. You've led us out here to starve. You've led us out here to die of dehydration. You've led us out here to be killed by Pharaoh and his men. You see the pattern here? They're trying to force God's hand. It's as if they're challenging his reputation, his, his worthiness, his, his honor. They're saying, you didn't just lead us out here to die, did you? Prove us wrong. You ever had a kid try to do that to you? You know, a, a young child who thinks they can force you to do what they want by making you appear unfair? They try to demand the terms under which God would serve them rather than them serving God. That's a test. That's testing God. We look back on them and we think, what silly people they were to do all those tests of God. But look, we do it too. We just don't call it that. We call it a bargain. We make bargains with God all the time, right? We promise things to Him if He would only do the things we want Him to do for us. And, and sometimes it's under some very serious and difficult situations, right? Sometimes it's, let this person live, God, and I promise I'll do this for you or I'll do that for you. And, and you know, we have our best intentions at the core of that, I know. But at the bottom line is we're treating Him as someone, either as an equal that we can negotiate with, or at worst, someone we can manipulate, that's not a relationship with God. That, that's a relationship with a false God, with a genie that you've kind of put in place of God, even though you're calling him God. And that's what Satan wants out of Jesus here. To dictate to the Father how Psalm 91 is going to get fulfilled. And ironically, had Jesus chosen to do this, the Father would have been under no obligation whatsoever to save Jesus. Like we said already, had Jesus jumped, he'd have been acting outside the will of the Father, which would have been disobeying the Father, which would have invalidated Psalm 91 because it was under the terms of that psalm that Jesus was protected, as long as he was loving the Father, as a result of obedience. Now, why would Jesus be tempted to do this? It doesn't really seem like a very powerful temptation, does it? <laughs> jump off this wall. I mean, are you kidding? I don't want to jump off a wall. 
But think about it from a different angle for a second. First of all, what is he tempting him by? We said the first one was the lust of the flesh. I told you earlier, this one is the pride of life. And that's what he was depending on. Satan was depending on pride. That is, the temptation Satan is offering here is that Jesus would have too much pride not to go through with it. Let me explain it. Pride, just to define it for you, pride is judging yourself worthy of honor more so than you truly are. Or seeking others to affirm your self-view that you have something worthy of honor. It's a very insidious and deceptive kind of sin. It's an evil that works in your heart in ways you don't even see yourself most of the time. It's so dangerous because you don't recognize it. We know pride when we see it in others, but we hardly ever recognize it in ourselves. You know why? Because we dress up pride to look virtuous. We tell ourselves that our motives are selfless. For example, we fish for compliments, but then we pretend to be embarrassed when we get them. Or we maneuver to be the center of attention at the party, and then we act surprised when everyone stops to listen to us telling jokes. Or we conspire to get credit for that team project at work. And then we look magnanimous when we give token acknowledgement to our co-workers. Oh, I couldn't have done it without her. And you, ever, you ever driven slowly through a parking lot with that new car, hoping your friends will admire you sitting in it? And then, and then you pretend not to notice it, them looking at you, you know? Like, oh, oh, there you are. I didn't see you there, right? In the end, you know what? We're proud of our humility, aren't we? As Solomon said, it's all vanity. But when pride rules in our hearts, we join Satan's team, at least for a while. We follow in his footsteps, trying to take over from God. Instead of serving God, we want God to serve us. So we want him to give us our desires and to meet our priorities, and we stop thinking about his priorities. Pride makes us steal God's honor and glory and to take credit for his provision and grace by calling it hard work and talent. I mean, these things are things we do all the time without even thinking about it. That's what Satan was banking on in this case. Satan was hoping that by questioning if Jesus was the Son of God and quoting Psalm 91, that he might give Jesus a desire to defend his reputation. And Satan quotes the Word of God out of context to suggest, oh, the Father is obligated to protect you, which would inflame your pride. I mean, what if I told you that? What if I told you that there's a place in the Word that says God is obligated to do this for you? When you go home at night saying to yourself, God has to do that for me, <laughs> you know? Look how important I am. God's, God's got to bow to my needs on this issue or, or, or whatever the thing is, right? At that point, if you get that little hook into someone's heart and you've got pride working for you at that point, all that would be required would be a little push off the wall. Just a little incentive to go off that wall, right? About halfway down, you might rethink the plan. But initially... <laughs> Your pride will make you do some of the stupidest things. Now, if that had happened, Jesus would have sinned and all would have been lost. I will submit to you that I think pride is, is Satan's most powerful deception, most powerful temptation. He has used this temptation contemporaneously to convince millions of believers that God wants to make us rich. Or that God is somehow obligated to heal you if you just say the right things in the right way. That we have a right to these things. Because God has promised us these things. Does that sound just like what he said to Satan? That's the primary error 
of you know, false teaching like the prosperity heresy and, and things of that sort. It implies this. At the root of all of that bad teaching, here's what you find. It implies that God is about serving our needs instead of us serving God. It just flips the whole thing. You may have thought that the prosperity heresy was dependent more on greed to gain its audience. And it certainly has an aspect of that, right? Greed plays into it. But I think its principal target is people's pride, this urge to make God serve our desires. And if someone can tell me that that's somehow compatible with Scripture and Christianity, I'm all ears because I've always liked that idea anyway. And if you tell me it's what God wants, well, then we're on the same team. Tell me how I can get that. It's horrible, isn't it? That false teaching asserts that God has promised to make us wealthy and it will come our way if we just claim it. It's the same exact manipulation that Satan is doing here in Psalm 91, suggesting God will show up when we want Him to, when we force His hand, that we can make Him meet our desires. Scripture doesn't say this, friends. It says the opposite of this. Scripture teaches an entirely opposite perspective on our relationship to God. The most commonly used word in the New Testament for a believer is servant, or in Greek, doulos, which is more accurately translated slave. Slave. Believers in Jesus Christ have been bought, redeemed, with a very heavy price, the blood of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price, and then he says, therefore glorify God in your body. So, As someone who's been purchased by God, I have an obligation to glorify God with my body, with my life. And that means I have to work to silence that part of my nature that keeps telling me that I can have equal standing with God. No, more than that, that I can dictate to God what He does. I've got to shut that down. I mean, I've got to make sure that does not get a hold on me because we have no right to anything apart from what the Lord has determined we should have, whether that is a possession or honor or power or whatever. So we need to make sure our recipe for those things is in line with His recipe for us in that regard and not on some track of our own. I want you to listen to what Jesus' instructions were to the disciples at one point as He walked with them. It's in Luke, and I'm just going to read it to you. Listen to what He says and tell me if this doesn't sort of reset our expectations a little bit. In Luke 17, 7, he says, Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, well, come immediately and sit down to eat? He says, But will you not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and and afterward you can eat and drink. And then Jesus says, Does he not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded? Does he? So you too, Jesus says. When you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. How about some humble pie? There's not a statement in that passage that's inconsistent with love. Not at all. That's a loving God who has died for you. You can't ask for more. What he's saying is, keep that in your mind when you remember what you owe him. And, you know, resist the urge to say, hey, I did a little work for you. How about we now reset this relationship a little bit? I got some things I want you to do, God. There's never that moment. There's never that moment. Except what he gives you, knowing it's all grace and it'll be good things. And he'll have 
You know, like he said, if you being evil know how to give your kids good gifts, does your Father in Heaven not know how to give you good gifts? There's no doubt He's going to be gracious and kind and giving and loving. And you've got more proof of that already in your life than you probably could count. What I'm saying is, pride will flip that script before you know it. And next thing you know, somehow He owes you. And when it doesn't show up, you're mad. I can't tell you how many people I've run into who have bought the lie of the prosperity gospel. They were deceived. And when it didn't pan out like they thought, they're burned. They're resentful. They hold God accountable. The God that you're upset at is a God called Satan. He's the one who taught you that. So Satan has attempted, at this point, to get Jesus to fall to the lust of the flesh and now to the pride of life. He's attempted to challenge Jesus' power. He's attempted to challenge the Father's promises. In both cases, he twisted Scripture to make it say things it wasn't saying. In both cases, Jesus answered the lie with the true view of Scripture. Now, before we look at the third temptation, I just want to take note of something quickly here in passing. You notice in both cases, there was this tit-for-tat. Satan making a claim from Scripture, either implicitly or explicitly, and then Jesus having an answer to those claims, but also from Scripture. Do you notice that? Now, if you didn't know better, you might think that that's teaching us that Scripture can contradict itself and that whoever has the best verse or the last verse gets to win the debate. You know, if you're not careful, that's how this comes across. Because Jesus even says, on the other hand, it says, and it makes it feel as though he's saying, well, you have your verse, I have mine. You ever heard Bible bingo? That's it. That's a term sometimes you can use for people who get into these debates. You know, it's a battle of wits between two unarmed people in the, in the body of Christ. And they're just throwing verses at each other like somehow that settles it. But friends, that's never true. Scripture never contradicts itself. Never. So if you think that there are two verses that stand opposed, you know, you have one, they have one, they seem to say the opposite thing, so now what do we do? Hey, one or both of you is wrong. That's the answer you have. One of us is wrong, maybe both of us. We should go back and do some homework before we go any further with our Bible bingo because we have got something wrong. These two verses are both consistently telling the same thing truthfully. Or they're on different topics and that's why you're so confused. That's something we have to understand. In this case, Satan misused his side of the scriptures trying to make it appear to say something it didn't. And I'll tell you, in many cases, in my experience, these so-called contradictions, or even these, here's a, a more polite way, sometimes you'll see academics saying this, well, there's tension in Scripture between these two. No, there's not. There's tension in your brain. It's just that you don't understand it. That's fine. That's going to be life for all of us. But there's no tension in Scripture. Everything is consistent with itself. Everything is in harmony. We need to look for that. And I'll tell you, you won't get every answer you want, but if you take that approach to Scripture, you'll find more answers than you will if you assume there's some contradictions. All right, so let's move on. Let's look at the last temptation, Matthew 4, 8. It says here, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. All right, his final temptation. Satan again moves Jesus here, or maybe another vision, we don't know, from where he was, now to a very high mountain. Now, traditionally, people will tell you that this is the mountain that's right next to Jericho, ancient Jericho. And I think they probably arrived, we don't know, that's just supposition. I think they probably arrived at that guess, because this is the highest mountain in the wilderness of Judea. So... If you assume he stayed in the wilderness, maybe that's where he went. Anyway, if you go to Jericho today, there's a cable car that takes you up to the place that Jesus and, and Satan stood. 
From that high point, Satan says to Jesus, look out, and he gets a vision of all the kingdoms of the world, and he tells Jesus that it's within his power to give to Jesus all of these kingdoms, provided that Jesus would fall down and worship Satan as God. Now, Satan's mention of kingdoms here, it refers to the entire physical earth. Satan is now, and for a while, the prince of the fallen world, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. He is the ruler of the world forces of darkness, Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 6. And I also want you to notice what Satan says about himself when he speaks to God the Father in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. He says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The point being is that's his home field. That's where he lives now. That's, that's his territory. Satan is roaming the earth because... This is his, for a time. And therefore, he has the power to give portions or all of it to whomever he wants. He rules the hearts of unbelievers. He has authority and dominion to hand out to those unbelievers whatever he pleases. And therefore, it's no surprise that many of the world's most evil people are also those who have great power and authority and wealth and success in the world. If you think those things go hand in hand merely because you have to be evil to get ahead in the world, well, there's probably some truth to that, but... The main reason is because they're giving that praise to their God that Satan just demanded. They're falling before him, whether truly in physical terms or simply in their mind, and he's rewarding them with the things he has to give, which are the things of this world. He is the God of this world, as Paul calls him, and he empowers those who worship him. It's just that simple. So now he's pressing Jesus to do the same, to acknowledge him as God rather than to acknowledge the Father in heaven. And in a sense... What Satan was offering to Jesus was the opportunity to reach his mission an easier way. Remember, Jesus came to earth as a man to redeem the fallen world from Satan. And God originally gave dominion of the world to Adam and woman in the garden. But when they fell to Satan's temptations, they essentially gave Satan the glory as their God. Remember we said, whoever you obey, that's who you're giving glory to. They obeyed the word of Satan instead of obeying the word of the Lord. When they did that, Satan became their God in that moment. And as a result, Satan received to himself the dominion they had. He became their superior in what God had given to them. So now, Jesus comes as our new Adam, like we've talked about in weeks past. His goal, his mission, redeem the earth, redeem the creation, redeem God's people from the curse. Doing it by his blood shed on the cross. That's the plan. Die a painful death on the cross to get back from Satan what Adam gave him easily. Enduring the shame to pay for Adam's mistake. Now, when he completes that plan, the Bible says he receives an inheritance. The Father has promised that Jesus will receive the inheritance of the entire earth as what God gives him, what the Father gives him in return for his work. But like any inheritance, you can only get it when the person who has it dies. So you can't, you know, you can't get your rich uncle's inheritance till he dies. Right? That's how it works. Jesus' death then was required before his inheritance was available. See, in God's case, God had to die to make an inheritance available, and then God resurrected to get his own inheritance back. See how that worked? But then the scriptures go on and say, all who are in Christ, by faith, share in the inheritance of Christ. That Christ will be delighted to share his inheritance among the sons of light, among you and I, among the believers. So when Jesus received back his inheritance, now he is offering to all those who are his by faith, the believers, 
to share in that inheritance, that when we too are resurrected, we too will come into that inheritance. We will receive as our eternal reward, our inheritance, some portion of this physical world when, it, when it's now being ruled by Jesus in his time on the earth as king, he will assign to each of us some portion of the world. As I've said many times, I have my eye on Maui. You can visit. So here's Satan offering Jesus a shortcut to getting his inheritance. Jesus could have all the kingdoms of the world, which is essentially like saying you can have what God the Father has been offering you. You can have all of that. Just lay down here and worship me. And if you do that, you can avoid the cross. That's the implied promise in this moment. He's saying, right now I can cut short this whole plan. No cross, no whipping, no starvation. None of that stuff. We can just go right to you having the world. Oh, but there's a small catch. You just have to come to me as God, and I'll give it to you instead of the Father. But of course, like everything else he does, it's a lie. Yes, he could have given Jesus the world of kingdoms that he ruled at that time, but it would not have been an eternal kingdom had he done that. He would have ruled over the world that Satan had dominion over only as long as Satan had that dominion. When Satan lost his dominion, then Jesus would have lost it with him. And that was the lie. Because the scriptures say one day Satan will lose his dominion over the world. The Bible promises he will be cut down in a day to come. In Ezekiel twenty-eight nineteen, the Lord says, All who know you, speaking to Satan, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will cease to be forever. God's word will not go out and not return to itself having accomplished what it was intended to do. Right? That will happen. So Satan could not offer Jesus what the Father offered Jesus. Not entirely. He could offer him a kind of pale version of it. A temporary fallen kingdom. Jesus has been promised to have something much greater. In Psalm 45, 6, the Father says, Your throne is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy from above your fellows. And then Psalm 145, 13, he says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. That's what Jesus was working to obtain through his sacrifice. The dominion to rule forever. Satan can't give him that. He doesn't have that kind of power. And so by taking him to the top of this mountain, what he had hoped to do is provoke the lust of the eyes in Jesus. That by that lust, Jesus might be tempted to gain this thing in a way that brought glory to Satan rather than in a way that brought glory to the Father. If you could say that the pride of life is the most powerful temptation, like we said a moment ago, then I think the lust of the eyes is the most common. I think it's the most common. The lust of the eyes, you remember, is that sinful desire to have things that we're not supposed to have or to obtain a legitimate thing in an illegitimate way. You all know that feeling? It leads to things like materialism, hoarding, collecting, having too much, which leads to debt which is obtaining things before you really can obtain them by using someone else's money, which then can lead to fraud, finding ways to get things illegitimately, or deceit, and then at some point maybe bankruptcy. These are the kinds of everyday activities of life that are often the result of the lust of the eyes. Not always, not always, but often our impulse activities brought upon by something shiny that catches our eye and we run after it and then we're like, oh, look at the bill. Why did I do that? It's any time that we're captivated in such a way that we aren't willing to wait for it to come by God's method or in God's timing, or we aren't even willing to ask Him if He would allow us to have it because we're pretty sure we know what the answer would be and we don't like that answer. 
In short, it's just sin brought upon by this attraction of the eye to something in our world. And in this case, what Satan is hoping is that by showing Jesus, you notice it says he could see everything, by showing Jesus the world in this way, that it it might lead to a moment of instant gratification. Jesus is thinking, you mean I can just have it now? Like that? Right now? No cross? That's what he's hoping. Twisting the promise that says, yeah, you can have a kingdom. Well, I could give it to you. It'll be the same kingdom, and it'll be easier. But once more, Jesus, as you know, responds from Scripture. Once again, interestingly, all three of his responses come from the same book of Scripture, from Deuteronomy. And he says, we are to worship and serve the Lord alone. Now, his answer is self-explanatory, right? That I'm not going to worship you. I'm only supposed to worship one God, and you're not him. But... At the same time, his statement reinforces something that we've said multiple times during this study. Worshiping God means what? Where does it begin? Obeying God. Obeying God, right? So what Satan said is, worship me. What Jesus said is, no, there's only one God I'm going to worship. But the real test of worship is, are you going to obey him? And there's really no other way around it. We cannot claim to love and worship our Lord if we are simultaneously giving Satan glory by following our temptations whether the lust of the eyes lust of the flesh or our pride the one you obey is the one you glorify and there are no shortcuts to obedience either you do what the Lord asks according to his timing and in keeping with his instructions or else it's sin and Satan will often tell you that obeying God means oh but if you do what God wants you're going to have to give something up you know it's not going to be very much fun you're going to miss something God's holding back from you. Isn't that what he told the woman? Did God surely say you may not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't say that. But the whole point was to make you wonder, is God holding something back from me? You ever had that feeling? Like, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but that seems like a lot better choice than than obedience. I'll tell you what it does. I'll tell you what obedience means. Obedience means foregoing a lustful desire of whatever kind that may be pulling you in another direction. Because you know in your heart there's something better waiting for you if you obey. Anybody here old enough to remember, let's make a deal? In that game show, you know, you have that moment where someone says, here's your little bobble, but there might be something better behind door number two. Which one do you want? You know, the thing you know or the thing you don't know? And you know, most of the time they went for door number two and it was like, what, a, a vacuum cleaner or a mop or something, right? They always, lo- they always lost out. What scripture says is, if you obey, what's behind door number two in heaven will wow your socks off. I has not seen... Nor has it entered into the heart of man all that the Father has for us. There, there's, you cannot, you imagine the best thing you could get for yourself in your life right now, God's got it beaten. But, take it when you shouldn't have it, and you just traded what's behind door number two, potentially. That's the general thought. I don't know that it works quite that literally, but the general idea is that as you fail to obey, you may be putting something at risk. What you're gaining now, you're going to lose. You're leaving it behind at least. But what did you trade? You don't want to find out. It's a bad deal. And it's always a lie. When the enemy tells you that you're leaving something good out when you obey, it's a lie. And in eternity, you're going to realize that obedience was always better. And you don't have to wait until you reach heaven to understand these things, by the way. Notice how Jesus brings this encounter to an end. Look in verse 10. Jesus tells Satan, go away. Now here again, remember how we started this study. I said, if you think Jesus is Superman in Clark Kent clothing... Then you're telling yourself, well, of course he can tell Satan to go away. He could have told Satan to jump in a lake. He could have told Satan to go in a hole. Satan will do whatever he tells him to do. What about me? How do I deal with Satan? All right, but here again, 
You're not looking at the scene accurately if you think that. Jesus is not in a supernatural form here such that his word can force Satan's hand. Because if that were true, there'd be no temptation. There'd be no point in this exercise. What Jesus did is what you can do. He told Satan, I'm not giving in to your temptations. And then he said to Satan, go away. And Satan fled, followed by angels that came to comfort him. Remember, Jesus fought Satan the same way we do, in the strength of convictions, resting on the truth of God's word. And even though Satan is wise and powerful, that power is limited, Scripture tells us. Scripture says Satan can subject you to trials, sort of like Job experienced, or he can bring temptations, like what you see here, But if you resist those schemes, he will flee. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God. That's a way of saying, obey God. And then he adds, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, if that sounds too easy, I want you to think about it for a minute. That's a promise of Scripture. Speaking of promises. The promise of Scripture is, if you resist him and his efforts to tempt you, he has no other option except to look elsewhere for his victims. That's it. He fled Jesus, he will flee you. Now, isn't that remarkable? When you think about that for a minute, isn't that remarkable? As powerful as he is, as crafty as he is, nevertheless, he depends on something if he's going to succeed. You know what he depends on? Your cooperation. He depends on your cooperation if he's going to succeed. He can only accomplish what you allow him to accomplish in your life. You certainly will feel the effects of him. I'm not saying that life will be a panacea. You're going to feel trials. You're going to feel temptation. That's not the point. The point isn't going through life without feeling any trouble. The point is, what does it cause you to do? And in the end, if you resist the temptation, if you endure the trials, he will give up. He will leave you alone, at least for a time. And he'll move on. Consider what Peter says as we finish. 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered a little while... The God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says, first, appreciate and respect the power of the enemy. We're not supposed to underestimate him here. But in the end, resistance is all that is required to defeat his schemes. You don't need a witch doctor. You don't need someone to come in and and do some special incantation. You don't have to wear garlic around your neck. You know, all the stuff that's around the church that you've probably seen where people get just crazy about what they have to do to stop Satan, and the book has made it very simple because that's how it works. Don't buy his lies and don't give in to his temptations. I understand that that's a challenge, but that's the challenge. That's it. By the way, if the Bible says you're to resist him, then you know what it's also telling us? Temptations are resistible. Temptations are resistible. Don't ever say the devil made you do it. He doesn't have the power. You can say no to your desires, and the Spirit living in you is more than capable of giving you that strength. Peter says he will establish and strengthen you. Just resist the enemy's efforts, remaining firm in your faith, and he cannot get his way. And then Peter finishes with this, and this is what we need to finish on as well. He says, keep an eternal perspective on all of this. Live with eyes for eternity. Understand what's really going on here. The battle the church has with the enemy, it started long before you showed up, long before you encountered him. As Peter says, you're suffering exactly the same things that the brethren have always suffered in the church. 
It's part of being an ambassador of Christ. It's part of being a child of God. After you've suffered a little while, meaning during your life on earth, that's what he's referring to, you'll be called into Christ's glory. And in that sense, you follow Christ's footsteps once more. Resist. Be on alert. Remain patient. And then look forward to your eternal reward. And in all of these things, you're like Christ. You know, Christ knew suffering too. He suffered, but he did it without cause. And he did it for our sake. If you're in this room tonight and you've heard me talk about believers or children of God or those who know Christ, and you're not sure that's you, well, let me tell you, it's not that complicated. You can join that group. It just takes faith that Christ's death was a payment for your sin and that you need that payment because you don't want to make it yourself. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what we're preaching today, the gospel that belief alone, faith alone in Jesus Christ is all that's required for you to have the eternal future that Jesus is talking about, that the scripture is talking about, to have the power of the spirit working in you. If that's something you have not heard before and it's new for you and you're believing it, you're thinking about it, you're, you're interested in it, I want you to come up here after this service is over. I'll be waiting and we'll talk. For the rest, those who know Christ already by our faith, let's give Christ the glory of our obedience by learning to follow his example in resisting the enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your strengthening of us to resist. I pray for relief from trials where they may be taking place, that the enemy would flee from those who are feeling the pressure of his temptations. That in all these things, Father, we seek more to obey you and to glorify you through our obedience than we would for those things that we desire. Counsel our pride, Father, so that we remember you are God. Counsel the lusts of our flesh, Father, so that we know this body is dying and we should not honor it above you. And restrain the lust of our eyes, Father, so that we would not become distracted in our days on earth from the mission we have of being your representative. Thank you for your word and its reminder and for the strength you give us through it, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.